Welcome to the Legal Lowdown podcast by Barton Gilman. Today, I'll be speaking with Greg Vanden Eichel about the new Title IX regulations for the 2020-2021 school year, which are due to go into effect on August 14th. Greg, thank you for calling in today. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. In addition to the chaos that is everything surrounding schools right now, given the pandemic, there are also new Title IX regulations going into effect on August 14th. Those are set to make fairly significant changes to the way elementary and secondary schools investigate and address claims of sexual harassment. I know there are four lawsuits that have been filed. So I would think the biggest question right now that schools might have with an eye towards can they get any additional time is whether or not those lawsuits are going to impact that August 14th deadline. Greg, what are your thoughts? Do you think that deadline is going to change at all? So I think the whole nature of these uh, regulations at this point is is in flux, mostly because of coronavirus. And the reason I said that is because the courts are in flux because of coronavirus. So in a non-corona world, I think that courts may have acted upon these lawsuits very quickly, knowing the universal ramifications and impact of the new rule and the new regulations. Mm. But with that said, the courts are moving slowly right now, and there are 10 days left until the regulations are to go into effect. And so I think it's unlikely, it's possible, but it's unlikely, I think, that we're going to get any sort of decision that's going to extend the time or delay the time for the rules to go into effect. And we're, we are advising our school clients that it's all hands on deck and we move forward as if August 14th going to proceed and, and the new Title IX regulations and rules are going to be the governing law. Okay. And are the lawsuits, are those anything that you are having to explain to clients the content of, or are those lawsuits that are basically looking for an extension to that deadline? Right. The lawsuits are challenging the the merits, the rulemaking process, the the creation of the new rule, and I think they largely stem from the the concern of the uh, of certain parties on the impact of these rules. Um, lawsuits aren't necessarily something that I'm counseling clients about because I I think the end game of them is, of the lawsuits is to is to stall the implementation of the deadlines, not necessarily mm-hmm. affecting the day to day impact of my types of clients. Okay. They don't impact how clients should prepare. No, no. I, I think the clients should be preparing as if the uh, the new Title IX regulations are going into effect, which involves preparing now with updating policies and training staff and, and employees on the new regulations. Okay. One of the most publicized changes to Title IX is related to the definition of sexual harassment. Can you explain what is different in the final rule? Yeah, sure. So we could do a whole podcast just on the individual differences between the final rule and what was in place, both with the interim rules and the uh, the former Obama administration's dear colleague guidance. <laughs> but mm-hmm. the, uh, the the biggest one really is this the, the definition of sexual harassment. And generally, Title IX applies to prohibit uh, discrimination based on sex uh, in a school. And there are there are three types of sexual misconduct that is generally um, covered by Title IX. But the, the most prevalent that we see in, our, in, my, in my practice is really the, uh, the sexual harassment. And under the new rule, sexual harassment is defined as severe and pervasive, objectively objectionable conduct of a sexual nature that's unwarranted 
and unwanted, and that uh, impacts um, a student's access to his or her education. This is a narrower definition than under the Obama administration and prior administrations, um, because it adds this severe, pervasive, objectionable analysis, and it also must be something that a reasonable person would find to be objectionable. In the past, it had just been any unwarranted sexual conduct, and then it was left, it was a broader category for investigators to, to pursue. Now there kind of has to, it's a higher threshold just for an investigation to begin, and schools are going to have to adjust to this and train their employees and staff. And I, I think there's going to be an extensive body of litigation in the next few years concerning what is severe, pervasive, and objectively objectionable. You know, I may use the word objective, but those terms are subjective to an extent. Yeah, I, w- I mean, I would think there's a lot of confusion around those issues. I think for schools, there are. Um, the, the, the language is borrowed from other contexts, like the employment context or uh, Title Seven uh, litigation, which is also employment-related litigation. But schools haven't really lived in a world of trying to identify severe and pervasive sexual misconduct and unwarranted conduct. Right. And, I mean, is it at all notable when I think in terms of an employment context, you're dealing with people who have been functioning in a more adult, professional world and are more accustomed to things than kids are going to be. So what a child or a teen might feel is severe is different than what an adult might feel is severe. Right. I think you're absolutely right. And one thing to note is that Title IX does apply to the adult employees, like so employee-on-employee misconduct. So there's a little bit of an analogy. But yeah, a student is not going to truly appreciate it. You know, a high schooler may more so than a, you know, a third grader. But it's going to really call into question what what is impermissible conduct. And I, I think schools, the more training they can do to try to understand what is and is not permissible and what to what extent, uh, the better off they're going to be. Okay. And do you advise schools that the training have examples or you know, how do you give them any clarity around severe and pervasive? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the ultimate thing is that first and foremost, the conduct has to adversely affect the student's access to his or her education. So if they can't meet that threshold, then you're probably not going to pursue a Title IX investigation. But let's assume it does. A student is performing poorly at school or not coming to school or seems withdrawn. Then, you know, it's tough to train on what's a specific example. You know, you talk, we train on talking to the students, the the affected parties and and getting examples. And, um, you know, pervasive is a little easier because it's widespread. But I think severe and objectively offensive, those are going to be tough. And, you know, what is offensive to one person is not necessarily offensive to another. And the the reasonable person standard, which is a common tort uh, phrase, you know, what would the reasonable person do? is in there. But again, you know, whoever the investigator is or whoever the decision maker is, they may have a subjective bias that, that's going to be tough to call and, and, and right. determine what impact that has. Yeah. Well, and also I think it's kind of unusual to define what a reasonable person is. Um, we see unreasonable people and positions of power all the time. Um, <laughs> right, right. You I know, mean, I, and... Yeah. I mean, as a, as a litigator, you know, and, and oh, anybody who's been to law school, obviously, in their initial tort class, you learn about reasonable person. And, and, and that, that's just a way to take out subjectivity, or you try to. 
but it's impossible to remove all subjectivity. And I think we're going to see that play out in the next few months as rules come into place. Okay. In addition to the new regulations changing that definition, um, can you also share with us what else is different in the new regulations and potentially more challenging for schools to plan for and enforce um, in these regs versus the past regs? Sure. Um, And we're here for two or three hours, right? Yeah, no problem. (laughs) I have all day. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the newer things that schools are going to have to consider are they're required to investigate, quote unquote, formal complaints. That is to say, a formal complaint is something that is written by the complainant, the the alleged victim, or um, is signed off on by the Title IX coordinator. In the past, it didn't have to necessarily have such a formal process in order to uh, trigger an investigation. So that's going to be something for schools to get used to is this formal complaint process. They're going to have to have specific documents in place, um, and Title IX coordinators are going to have to be trained on how to receive these complaints and how to respond to them. They also knew that they have an obligation to reach out to the complainant in a, in a reasonable period of time. There's no specifically defined period. And talk to the complainant. Talk to the complainant about his or her wishes. What do they want to do? And that's going to be, you know, down the road, that's going to be an issue too, because what if somebody says, well, the Title IX coordinator was pressuring me not to, to proceed with a complaint, and that's not what yeah. I wanted to do, and the outcome didn't turn out how I wanted. So that's going to be an interesting area, and I think ripe for litigation. Yeah. The other thing, another change related to Title IX coordinators. So typically a Title IX coordinator is somebody who is um, identified by the school who kind of runs the school's Title IX program. Uh, in the past, the Title IX coordinator could be the the recipient of complaints, the investigator. It wasn't typically the, the decision maker, but but could be. Now the Title IX coordinator is the best practice under the, as I read these regulations is the Title IX coordinator is the person who receives the complaints, who re- who has communications, initial communications with the complainant, with the alleged perpetrator, with any witnesses initially. And then you want a another impartial investigator. And that could be that could be a couple of people, but they need to be separate from the Title IX coordinator. And then you definitely need a third person who is a impartial, uninvolved decision maker. That would be the person who oversees a hearing. That could be for my clients, that could be a board of trustees or a select group of the board of trustees. Um, or it could be an administrator of the school who who was not involved in the investigation. Um, okay. So that's going to be um, new training for Title IX coordinators. And Title IX coordinators, particularly in my clients who are, who are public charter schools for the most part, they're wearing a number of hats. So this is one more thing. I was going to ask that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is one more thing that they're going to have to become experts on. And they're going to have to do that in a brand new world of school, right? Because yeah. you know, you know, we're, some schools are going back in person. Um, in the hybrid model, some schools are going back remotely. They're going back at different times. It's going to be like drinking from a fire hose, I think, for a lot of these people. So, you know, we, we're here to offer for our clients essentially the ability to talk through these issues, advise them on what's new, provide training as necessary, provide guidance, provide policies, and hopefully we can take out some of the legwork that they're going to have. Okay. There are, as I know, we could, like I said, we could be here for two or three hours just in the changes. The two other things that I think are critical that have, that have changed, and the first is that the, uh, the burden of proof is different under the new regulations. Um, so under the Obama Dear Colleague regulations, the burden of proof to prevail 
was a preponderance of the evidence. That's essentially the civil the civil statute basis, uh, where you know just more likely than not that there was some sort of Title IX violation. Now schools have the option to have preponderance of the evidence burden or what's called a clear and convincing uh, burden, which is clear and convincing evidence, which is higher degree of evidence to prevail. Um, you know, some people like to say it's like 75% likely that there was some sort of um, violation. Now, the, the catch here is that schools need to have a consistent burden for all, essentially all disciplinary actions across the board. So if you have a different violates the plagiarism policy, if you're going to do clear and convincing for plagiarism, you can't do preponderance of, of the evidence for Title IX. So they're looking for consistency, which I think is going to cause some issues, and schools are going to have to revisit how they're going to judge these types of cases. Okay. And do they have to declare, you know, at some point, do they have to say, from here on out, we're going to be using one versus the other? So they do. Um, they have. They need to put that in their Title IX policy, and Title IX policies must be publicly disclosed. And it, so that school, we, we have our schools typically put them on the websites or in their handbooks. But another new change, this is kind of a minor one, is that schools are required to provide the identity of the Title IX coordinator. And we would just suggest in Title IX policies, or at least a link to your policies, to all parents and guardians and to all applicants. Now, that's different from a traditional, from my clients, the charter schools, they have applicants every year. You know, traditional school districts don't really typically have applicants. You think of applicants for like colleges. But for, the, for charter schools, and there's not a lot of clarity to this particular regulation, but they're going to have to consider putting links to their Title IX policies in their admission applications, which is something they've never done before. Hmm. Okay. And is it in the policy that it would tell, you know, I'm just thinking of students that have had a situation happen, it almost sounds as though they are not allowed to approach the Title IX coordinator personally and just talk to them. It sounds like it has to be written, or can they just approach that person and talk to them? Yep, that's a great question. So they, they, they can and they are encouraged to talk to the Title IX coordinator or any employee at the school. That's a change, too, is that they can talk mm-hmm. to any employee. Then, you know, they, they can share their circumstances, and with the Title IX coordinator, they could decide, do I want to file a formal complaint or do I not? Schools only have an obligation to investigate a formal complaint. They certainly could have in their policies that they'll investigate all complaints, but under Title IX, their, their duty is to investigate formal complaints. But uh, to your point, they are, we, we encourage all of our clients to basically have an open-door policy for students and employees concerning these issues because you just don't know where, where any of these uh, investigations could, could lead. You mentioned that there was an additional point in, in the changes that would be another hurdle in addition to the type of evidence. And what is that last change? So it's kind of two-pronged. Um, the, again, most of my clients are K through 12, so this is optional for them, but it is the first part of this is optional. The second part is mandatory for uh, colleges and universities is um, hearings. K through 12 schools don't, aren't required under the new regulations to have hearings. But if they do, the rules of the hearings, and we, we encourage our clients often to, to have hearings to the extent it's possible because it does allow for better due process and a better ability to, to get your case out and for the parties to be heard. But the new rules are balancing the complainant and the alleged uh, perpetrator's due process rights, or at least that's the attempt of the rules. And so 
there is a lot of detail to all of this, but the safest way to, to apply these rules is whatever rights you provide to the complainant during the hearing, whether it's have an attorney, give them a copy of the transcript, um, allow them to call witnesses, you have to give the exact same rights to the alleged perpetrator. And that's something that we deal with every day in the regular corporate schools. Don't board of trustees hearings aren't nearly that that formal. Um, and part of that also now is they're they're implementing or they're allowing for live cross examination during these hearings. Um, okay. the, the Obama guidance encouraged the schools to try to refrain from live cross examination, and, and the examination would be done by by an advocate, not party versus party. But it can create a lot of trauma to basically have to relive this. But now the new regulations for hearing cross-examination or, if necessary, cross-examination from separate rooms, but like you have a video feed or something, um, if necessary, um, that, that is now to be allowed during these hearings. And on the, just the last issue with respect to the hearings is that new under the regulations, and this is required for anybody who has a hearing, is that both parties are entitled to appeal and must be given the opportunity to appeal um, under the Obama guidance, only the complainant could appeal if he or she did not prevail. The temporary Trump administration rules gave schools the option. If you're going to let one party appeal, you have to let both parties appeal. In the final rules it, and what's going into effect August 14th, both parties must be given the opportunity to appeal a decision. Okay. Told you, to, told you there were lots of changes. <laughs> there are a lot of changes. And then how does COVID affect the hearings? I understand that there were a lot of changes to sort of how and what school board hearings could be handled in light of COVID. Um, And I'm sure that's gotten more hammered out and it has a pattern to it. Does COVID affect the hearings? Are they supposed to be in person and therefore they have to be suspended during a time of quarantine or does it have any effect at all? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And I think that's part of why, you know, doing the pre-planning for Title IX right now is, uh, is important because COVID has created a whole new world, um, but Title IX still applies, whether your school is in in-person session, whether your boards are meeting in person, or whether you're doing everything remotely. If, if a school receives a report that somehow two remote students are Title IX viol- violation, that must be investigated. And, you mu- and so the schools are going to have to come up with not only a new Title IX policies, but probably a COVID section for those policies related okay. to how we're going to do these remotely if we're not in person, meaning you know, the Title IX coordinator is going to have to schedule calls via Zoom or, or, or conference calls or telephone calls with each party, collect how information is going to be shared in a secure way to the, with the school, where it's going to be kept. And then to have these hearings, generally the hearings go through stages. If um, you know, if it's between an administrator and or the, the initial decision maker, and that might not be the board, then you would probably figure out a way to do a Zoom call. You would want to probably do that as opposed to a traditional conference call for due process purposes. You have to figure out a way to record it and make sure that everybody can get a copy of it because that's required under Title IX now. And then if appealed to your board of trustees, if that's the next level for your for your particular school then that would get on your, your school board, your, your agenda for a meeting. And you would likely have that meeting in executive session. But, uh, you know, I have clients in Rhode Island and Massachusetts primarily, and both states have executive orders on how board meetings are to be conducted under the COVID state of emergency. And you would, you would just follow those rules, but you'd also have to make sure that all of the procedural requirements of Title IX can be satisfied 
through a remote hearing. Okay. Is it possible that sexual harassment could take place with two remote students in a remote setting? I'm sort of, I guess, what is the school's responsibility if it's not happening in a remote class setting, whatever that looks like, if it's a Zoom class or they're videoing classes? Are there, yep. how do schools navigate what is severe if it's happening remotely? Yeah. So generally under the new, under the new regulations, Title IX will apply to persons in the United States with respect to their education programs. So there's key aspects there. In a facility or a location that's under the control of the school, where the the incident has to happen, the unwarranted conduct needs to happen. So here's an example of how I think it can, and there are many examples of how I think violations of Title IX could still happen. But let's say, you know, there's a remote lesson going on. Um, or, you know, nowadays, kid, most kids, um, not most, but also a lot of students have access to uh, Google Docs or they have, they have email addresses through their school or they have Chromebooks at home. So let's say, you know, it's a school day. You're either in a lesson or maybe you're not, but you're on school time. And um, student A is just sending unsolicited, sexually um, ob- objectionable emails and pictures over and over and over again to student B. Student B arguably has an argument that this is, you know, this is unwarranted sexual conduct. It's severe and pervasive. I can't get my work done because I'm getting all these emails. And and frankly, it's defensive to me. Um, And so you file a report with the school. I think there's an argument to me that the school has a responsibility under those conditions to investigate because it's using school resources and it's, in my scenario, on school time. You know, they, they may also need to contact the parents and the, to the extent of how, how expansive it is, maybe, maybe law enforcement. But I think, I think the schools are better off from a risk management perspective, investigating more at this point. And if they don't find anything, they don't find anything, but at least they have fulfilled the, the spirit of their Title IX obligations. Okay. And then this brings up privacy. So, um, how will the regulations impact student privacy in terms of, you know, will there be identifiable student information that schools have to protect but can't do so with these new regulations? How is privacy affected, if at all? Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great question. And it's a question with respect to all activities of school and, and a dissemination of information. The way I read the regulations, I'm not seeing a huge change in the privacy issues. The school still has to maintain the privacy of the students who are involved, the witnesses who are involved. However, the parties have due process rights. And so you're generally entitled, you know, the the accused is entitled to know the name of his accuser, to know the details of the accusations. That information, while while, while that Title IX complaint might go into a student record, which is otherwise confidential and if Joe Smith, member of the public, asked for the alleged victim records of the public records request, none of that would be disclosed. But for the purposes of a Title IX investigation, that information is required to be shared so that the alleged perpetrator can, can develop his or her defense um, in, in accordance with due process. Now, the entire Title IX investigation itself for a particular investigation should be maintained confidential to the fullest extent allowable unless, you know, some other emergency or, or public safety issue requires some sort of this limited disclosure, the personal health information or the uh, education record of an alleged victim 
should only be shared within the very small universe of that Title IX investigation. Okay. All right. And what, I mean, what do you do if the perpetrator shares that with friends or other yeah. students? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that is impermissible, <laughs> but if it's outside of Title IX and the school should take disciplinary action on that student, I would say the, the alleged victim would have other means of recourse against uh, the person who released disclosed the information. That would be an invasion of privacy. There, were, there, was, there would be potential grounds for a civil suit, depending on your state, potential grounds for a criminal suit. So, but the school would be responsible for that. Subsequent disclosure is, a, uh, is an interesting question. And, and I think at the outset in public policies, schools should be telling all parties information must be maintained confidential. You cannot disclose this to anybody outside of this specific investigation. If we learn that information is impermissibly disclosed, you know, we'll take further action. And that way schools have made it clear at the outset that they are acting as if this is entirely confidential. And, and generally, it's difficult to be held responsible for the voluntary action of a third party who violated your own rules. Yeah. Okay, that's great advice. Um, you had mentioned staff training. Yeah. Are there new requirements around the training for roles like investigator, decision maker, facilitator, any, anything new there other than training them for the changes? Right, right. Well, definitely that's the first one is training them, training them for the changes. And there are new specifically enumerated contents for training. It's not to say that these issues didn't come up in training. I'm sure they did. But now, you know, we're advising clients to kind of like, you know, you do have like the check the box material to make sure that those points get across. And then obviously further discussion comes out of that. But there are some new, what I'll call check the box areas, specifically training on the definition of sexual harassment and the scope of the school's education program, where sexual harassment can be experienced and be actionable under Title IX. There's going to have to be necessary training on that. Decision makers are going to have to be trained on how to use technology during these hearings. And this is particularly true during COVID. I mean, one thing you're going to have COVID technology, but when we get back to a, a traditional in-school setting, you know, court, I say courts, but administrative hearings, hearings in general, they're becoming more tech reliant. And, and so decision makers are going to have to know how to use the technology. De decision makers and investigators also are going to have to receive training on the issue of relevance. And because part of the new rules is that when during your cross-examination, the new rules require you're only allowed to ask quote-unquote relevant questions. But relevant is such a broad term and it's so subjective. We're going to be teaching our clients, you know, it's fact-specific, but you're going to have to identify what's relevant. You can't be afraid to limit the scope of a cross-examination um, if it's getting outside of the... Uh, of the scope of the particular claim. And that's going to, and I trust, and I know that investigators, coordinators, decision makers, they try to do that. Logically, people know that you, you're not entitled to all information under the sun. But this is something that's, you know, again, OCR, which is the Department of Education agency that investigates Title IX compliance, they're going to be looking for those check the box things. And that training can only help. And then the training generally is not something that can happen you know, once every two years, it needs to happen at least annually, if not more frequently, because this is such a evolving area of law and it's so fact specific. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I would imagine that they're, depending on the results of the election, the law may be changing again. 
it seems like we ping pong back and forth a bit. <laughs> yeah, what, what will be interesting is that we had the Obama Dear Colleague guidance. We had prior regulations, but traditionally, for whatever reason, those haven't been considered the law. They've always been considered guidance. For the first time, these new rules actually have the force of law. So is, that's going to, you know, a new administration comes in. Is it going to be more difficult to revise these? Is it going to be easier? What's the process going to be? I, I don't think it's going to be easier. But, you know, but you're right. Uh, I think we live in a world now where every four or eight years we're, we're flip-flopping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and just in case anybody out there is listening, thinking, ah, eh, things are going to change in a few months. Maybe I won't. <laughs> do something. That's a good point, that these laws may be more difficult to change, so it's important to adhere to them. Yeah, and and, and to be honest, schools, they have no choice. Um, This is Title IX is a hotly contested area of law. It's also very visible, Department of Education. They Mm -hmm. investigate these claims with great detail. They look for issues and policies that find deficiencies because policies are missing parts that are you know, require, but may not seem, oh, that's, I, I can, I can, that's not necessary. I, I know that logically. And so the schools are, are taking risks by not, you know, implementing new policies as quickly as possible. And the school year, you know, I can speak for Massachusetts. Uh, there's a couple more weeks because we're starting a little bit later this year, but it, these are right around the corner and every single school has so much on their plate. But this is, uh, this is something that if this isn't in place for day one, and you have a Title IX incident or issue on day two, and you don't have a policy in place, your policy is going to be found to be out of line with the current rule, and your your entire investigation could be found to be improper. I hope I didn't sufficiently scare our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all understand you have to do this. (laughs) I just want what's best for them. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And that's good. They're glad for it. Um, Is there anything else that you want to cover before we close? I know as you advise clients, things that are popping up that you're seeing that clients that are listening should be considering? I I think I kind of, I I would like to reiterate, we talked about this um, earlier, but they just need to remember that we're going into a strange time, but Title IX applies. And we, we still have the same obligations, we still have the same requirements to investigate these claims. And it may be difficult, it may be burdensome, but there is nothing in these rules that unduly burdensome counts as a defense to an improper investigation. And the investigation needs to be, under the new rules, quote-unquote, reasonable in the light of of the circumstances. These are very unique circumstances, but we need to, you know, we'll be working with our schools and schools need to work with their staff to develop reasonable investigation mechanisms uh, during even this unique period of time. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Greg. Um, I appreciate your time and the very important messaging around this. And um, August 14th is right around the corner. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to speak about this. And yeah, it's coming quickly. So we're all running to the deadline. Yeah. 
<laughs> if anybody is interested in more podcasts with Greg about Title IX, uh, you can find them on our website at www.bglaw.com. Uh, his bio is also on the website. And then one thing we did touch upon a little bit is student discipline during COVID uh, in relation to Title IX. There is also a student discipline podcast on our website by one of Greg's colleagues in New York that may be helpful for some. But thank you for joining me today to Greg and to all of our listeners. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman serves clients throughout the Northeast with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York, offering legal services in a wide variety of matters, including medical and other professional liability defense, premises liability and business litigation, education law, employment, family law, insurance coverage, trust and estates, criminal defense, corporate formation, and intellectual property. The firm and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades including Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, Outstanding Philanthropic Business, the Common Good Award, and Super Lawyers. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or call us toll-free at 888-273-9903.